Hello and welcome back to this episode of the High Yield Podcast of Medicine. In this episode, we continue our discussion of pediatric orthopedics with the focus on upper extremity and cervical spine disorders. In the upper extremity section, we'll discuss brachial plexus injuries, nurse med's elbow, and anterior shoulder dislocation. And in the cervical spine section, we'll address torticollis, atlantoaxial instability, and clipel fail syndrome. In the next episode, we will address kyphosis, scoliosis, and the causes of back pain in children. Now, beginning with brachial plexus injuries, we'll only cover Arab's palsy and Comcast's palsy. That's the birth injuries causing either upper or lower trunk lesions, respectively, as these are the types of brachial plexus injuries that happen, especially among neonates, as a consequence of birth trauma from excessive traction on head, neck, or arm. So what's Arab's palsy? It's a traction tear on the upper trunk of brachial plexus. Do you remember what spinal nerve roots contribute to the formation of upper trunk? That's C5 and C6. Do you remember what terminal branches of brachial plexus are derived from the upper trunk? Musculocutaneous nerve and axillary nerve. Do you remember what muscles are innervated by axillary nerve? Deltoid and teres minor. What functions will be impaired due to the lesion to axillary nerve roots? Impaired deltoid function would result in loss of arm abduction at shoulder after 15 degrees, while impaired teres minor function will result in impairment of lateral rotation. Is the initial 15 degrees of shoulder abduction intact in herbs palsy? No. Why is it so? Remember, the only trunk among upper, middle, and lower trunks of the brachial plexus that also gives rise to some branches is the upper trunk, and the upper trunk gives rise to the suprascapular nerve and nerve to subclavius. The suprascapular nerve is the nerve supplying supraspinatus and infraspinatus, and supraspinatus is the muscle that's responsible for initiation of shoulder abduction. Put it simply, there will be complete impairment of shoulder abduction from initiation all the way up to the horizontal line. By the way, do you remember what muscle helps in abduction after 90 degrees or above the horizontal line? That's trapezius that's supplied by the accessory nerve. So one finding in Erb's palsy is the fact that arm hangs by the side. Why is it so? Because of complete loss of abduction and again it's due to impaired function of axillary nerve as well as suprascapular nerve to supraspinatus but we mentioned that this nerve the suprascapular nerve not only supplies the initiator of shoulder abduction that's supraspinatus but it also innervates infraspinatus What's the function that's impaired due to impaired innervation of infraspinatus? That's impaired lateral rotation. What are the shoulder lateral rotators? Infraspinatus and teres minor. So remember, both lateral rotators are also impaired. Teres minor from axillary nerve and infraspinatus from suprascapular nerve. What will be the resultant position? Arm takes a medially rotated position. Are you with me? For the lesion to axillary nerve, we have impaired function of deltoid and teres minor. For the impaired function of 
suprascapular nerve to supra and infraspinatus. We also have impaired function of both lateral rotators and shoulder abductors. These so far will result in arm that hangs by the side due to impaired abduction and arm that's medially rotated due to impaired lateral rotators. And we mentioned the other nerve that's impaired is musculocutaneous nerve. What will be the result of damage to musculocutaneous nerve? Impaired function of all muscles in the anterior arm compartment, that is forearm flexors. We are talking about biceps brachii and brachialis. Couple points about forearm flexors. Remember that the main flexor is brachialis. Biceps brachii functions as the flexor and supinator, while we have another forearm flexor that especially comes handy during pronation, and that's brachioradialis. This one is not innervated by musculocutaneous nerve, but it is innervated by radial nerve. So what will be the resultant hand position? Because of impaired flexion and especially impaired supination, arm will take an extended and pronated position. So what is the overall posture of the arm in Arab's palsy? Arm hangs by the side, is extended and pronated in a medially rotated position. This resembles in a waiter's tip hand position and that's why Arab's palsy is also referred to as waiter's hand. Now, what sensory impairments you expect to see in the Arab's palsy? Even though these are mainly palsies and we are mainly focused on the impaired motor function, and especially in adult injuries to the upper trunk where we can more easily evaluate sensory impairment, we will find loss of sensation over deltoid muscle as well as lateral arm because of impaired axillary function and we'll find impaired sensation over lateral forearm due to the innervation of lateral cutaneous nerve of forearm by musculocutaneous nerve. Why Arab's palsy in the neonate mainly involves the right arm? Remember, it's a birth injury, and during the traction maneuvers at birth or forceps-assisted delivery, the right side of neck and shoulder are exposed to lateral traction. Same is true in the case of shoulder dystocia and macrosomias. By the way, can you imagine what could be the possible mechanism of injury for the upper trunk in an adult person? Landing on shoulder, for example, on horse riding or biking injuries. What can be the possible mechanism for musculocutaneous nerve injury in an adult? Specifically, look for baseball pitchers who come with forearm flexor weakness. This may indicate musculocutaneous nerve injury alone. Now, what is Comkey's palsy? That's injury such as traction or tear of the lower trunk of brachial plexus. By the way, do you remember the roots of the lower trunk? That's C8 and T1 spinal roots. What's the common mechanism of it? For infants, upward traction on arm during delivery. For adults, it can happen after traumatic traction, such as attempting to grab a tree branch to break a fall. What is the clinical feature of Comkey's palsy? The hallmark is total claw hand. Do you remember what is the clawing? Inability to extend fingers when attempting to extend them. In what other situations we discuss clawing? In distal, median, or ulnar nerve injuries. Weakness of what muscles result in clawing? Weakness of lumbricals. What's the difference in the clawing that's observed in Comkey's palsy with that of distal, median, or ulnar nerve? 
lesions in distal ulnar nerve we only have ulnar claw because the ulnar lumbricals the lumbricals of fourth and fifth fingers are affected in distal median nerve lesion we have median claw that affects lumbricals of second and third fingers but in Comkey's palsy all fingers have clawing why is it so remember the function of lumbricals is to flex MCP joint and to extend the interphalangeal joints, both proximal and distal interphalangeal joints. Now, regardless of median or ulnar innervation, all lumbricals are innervated by T1 nerve root. And therefore, when the T1 nerve root is affected, as in Klumke's palsy, all fingers will have impaired MCP flexion and IP or interphalangeal extension. In other words, the wrist would obtain an extended position because of inability to flex, while interphalangeal joints will obtain a flexed position because of their inability to get extended by lumbricals, and the inability of interphalangeal joints to extend is referred to as clawing. Now, what other muscles are affected in Comkey's palsy? All intrinsic hand muscles, including not only lumbricals, but also interossei, thenar, and hypothenar group of muscles. Why in Comkey's palsy, wrist flexion is also impaired in addition to total hand claw? Because flexor digitorum superficialis, that contains fiber from C8 and T1, is also involved. Now, each one of Arab's palsy and Klumke's palsy may have one specific symptom outside of the upper extremity. What is it? In Klumke's palsy, given the possibility of involvement of T1 nerve roots, we may have involvement of sympathetic fibers of the first thoracic nerve and a resultant Horner syndrome with ipsilateral ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis. In Arab's palsy, where upper trunk involvement may include C5, phrenic nerve may also show some degree of weakness, for example, in unilateral diaphragmatic breathing weakness. Okay, what is the basis for the diagnosis of these brachial plexus injuries? They are usually diagnosed based on history and physical exam. What imaging is required for the assessment of a patient with brachial plexus injuries? Given the possibility of lesions to brachial plexus after clavicular fracture, plain radiographs of the shoulder is required. What is the management of brachial plexus injuries? Observation and range of motion physical therapy to prevent contracture. What's the prognosis? Almost 80% of patients fully recover by three to six months. What's the management options if the patient has not recovered within six months? Electromyography and nerve conduction studies plus consideration for surgical intervention. Okay, our next subject of upper extremity injuries includes nurse med's elbow. What is it? It's simply subluxation of radial head secondary to longitudinal traction. For example, when the child is being pulled or lifted by the hand. What ligament is specifically involved? It's subluxation involving annular ligament over the radial head. Why it's more common among children younger than six years of age? Because the radial head in this age group has a cylindrical shape that allows it to slip out of the annular ligament. That's the ligament that keeps the radial head in place. 
What's the typical finding on physical exam? The child refuses to bend the arm at the elbow. In other words, the elbow joint is held in the flexed position. There's of course sudden onset of pain that's difficult to localize and hand function is typically normal, even though the child is overall unwilling to use the affected arm. How is it diagnosed? If the injury was observed, the diagnosis is clinical without any need for imaging. But if the injury was unwitnessed, radiographic confirmation is required. What's the management? Reduction, which is achieved by either gentle hyperpronation of the forearm or supination at 90 degrees flexion while applying pressure to the radial head. True or false, after reduction of nurse med's elbow, post-reduction grafts and immobilization is required. That's false. Post-reduction radiographs are not needed and the child would be able to move his or her arm within 15 minutes of the reduction even though it's recommended to avoid excessive use of the arm for the 24 hours as subluxation has a tendency to recur. Next, the disorder could be discussed in the case of an adolescent athlete who has come with shoulder pain and inability to touch his contralateral shoulder with the opposite hand. After wrestling practice, he holds the arm in an externally rotated position. What is the diagnosis? This is anterior shoulder dislocation. What's the common mechanism of injury? Excessive external rotation or abduction or extension as happens in wrestling or gymnastics. What's the basis for the diagnosis? Physical exam and history need to be supported by radiographs, especially for the axillary view of the glenohumeral joint to both confirm the dislocation and exclude the fractures. What's the management? Immobilization after closed reduction. What should be remembered for the follow-up of shoulder dislocation? There is a rate of up to 90% recurrence, especially among adolescents with anterior shoulder dislocation. Now, let's briefly review some of the disorders of cervical spine, beginning with torticollis. True or false, acquired torticollis are more common than congenital type. That is false. So what is the mechanism of the most common type of torticollis? That's the congenital type. It's usually due to uterine constraints or birth trauma that cause contractures in ipsilateral sternocleidomastoid muscle. Rare causes include cervical spine deformities such as Klippel-Fail syndrome. What are the possible risk factors or etiologies of acquired torticollis? Most common causes are either ophthalmologic, CNS, musculoskeletal, traumatic, or infectious conditions such as strabismus or refractive errors, posterior fossa tumors, syringomyelia, atlantoaxial subluxation, cervical discitis, and among infectious causes, never forget cervical adenitis, retropharyngeal abscess, or osteomyelitis. At the end, never forget dystonic drug reactions. Also, what is Sandifer syndrome? It's a type of spasmodic dystonia with possible opistothonic posturing seen in patients with GERD or hiatal hernia. The manifestations include an intermittent course for torticollis. What are the clinical features of torticollis regardless of the type? Both congenital and acquired types will show head that's tilted toward the affected side, which means chin is rotated away from the affected side. There is a limitation on the range of motion. 
on lateral neck flexion or rotation and also there could be a soft tissue tightness or palpable mass now what is the underlying pathology of the soft tissue palpable mass that is seen on physical exam of patients with torticollis that's hematoma spasm or fibrosis within sternocleidomastoid muscle now, what feature helps distinguish congenital versus acquired torticollis? The congenital type will result in asymmetric head shape, specifically positional plagiocephaly, while there is no plagiocephaly in the acquired type. What's the recommended management? Physical therapy, including stretching. Remember, the earlier the onset of physical therapy and stretching, the higher the rate of complete resolution. Now, what is this Klippel-Fail syndrome? It's congenital fusion of the cervical vertebrae. What's the clinical presentation? It's a triad of low-set hairlines, short neck, and limited neck motion. What are the possible associations with Klippel-Fail syndrome? In addition to congenital torticollis, the patients may have genitourinary or cardiac abnormalities as well as hearing loss or scapular deformities. And finally, what is atlantoaxial instability? As the name indicates, it's the unstable atlantoaxial joint that is excessively mobile and therefore prone to dislocation. Remember, it's not only happening between first and second cervical vertebra, but less commonly possible between occiput and the first cervical vertebra. What are the common associations with atlantoaxial instability? The well-known condition is Down syndrome, but Klippel-Fell syndrome and other skeletal dysplasias are other possible associations. What's the most important clinical considerations in patients with atlantoaxial instability? Given the fact that the patients are commonly asymptomatic and even physical exam is usually normal, any patient with underlying pathologies that are known associations with atlantoaxial instability, such as patients with skeletal dysplasias, Down syndrome, or clipple fail, or rheumatoid arthritis, for example, should be approached with high index of suspicion to avoid the spinal cord injury. That's a complication with dislocation or instability of atlantoaxial joint. That said, the patients who are symptomatic may have neurologic signs such as neck pain, weakness, or even impaired sphincter control. How is the diagnosis formulated or made? Diagnosis requires documentation of excessive C1 and C2 junction movement on lateral cervical spine grafts as well as flexion extension graft. What's the management? Avoidance of the sports that increases the instability such as contact sports or tumbling and trampolines as well as surgical correction by fusion of C1 and C2 especially if the instability is severe. What's the possible feared complication? Paralysis or even spinal shock and death if the instability is not detected early enough. Okay, in the next episode we will discuss kyphosis, scoliosis and the causes of low back pain among children. Thank you.